Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on With Respect is Jim Mitzelfeld. Jim is currently Senior Counsel to the Investigations Division of the Office of Inspector General for the Department of Justice. It's a long title, and it has some, uh, some very interesting uh, data behind it in which we'll talk about uh, inspectors general, but we'll also talk about his background in journalism and in prosecution. Jim Mitzelfeld... With respect. Jim, how are you today? Great. So, Jim, you know, I, I led into this with uh, you're in the, ins- the inspector general's office for the Department of Justice. And I, I understand I'm not going to tread on the, uh, any particular investigation that you are involved in. But as uh, senior counsel to the investigations division of that office, you've got to be able to at least tell us what is it that inspectors general do? What is their role? Where do they come from? Yeah, absolutely, John. And uh, it's great to talk to you this morning. Um, <clears throat> the the uh, In the wake of the Watergate uh, uh, affair, uh, Congress passed the Inspector General's Act in 1978. And what it did was it created um, the Office of Inspector General in all the different federal agencies. Um, and basically our role in that position is to uh, provide independent oversight over the federal agency we're in uh, and investigate uh, waste, fraud, abuse, allegations of misconduct, uh, ethical improprieties, criminal conduct. And so at the Department of Justice, our role is to, and we have about, uh, there's there's one inspector general who is appointed by the president. In this case, uh, Michael Horowitz is our current uh, IG. He was uh, appointed by President Obama, and um, he's a former federal prosecutor, um, and he has uh, over 500 employees, uh, 125 sworn law enforcement agents that, that uh, carry a gun and, and can make arrests, uh, 150-some auditors, and uh, quite a few lawyers and other uh, inspectors, and the, the 500-plus of us that work for the OIG uh, investigate and kind of what I call babysit the other 110,000 employees who work for the Justice Department. And so that would include if there's an allegation that an FBI agent has done something improper, a DEA agent, uh, U.S. Marshal, uh, ATF agent, uh, Bureau of Prisons employee, 
or a federal prosecutor, uh, our old jobs, uh, then we investigate that. How long have you been doing it? Uh, I joined the office in 2015. What about uh, before that? I, you were also an inspector general elsewhere. Yes. Um, I, I was uh, working at the Department of Justice, and I got a call from uh, uh, somebody who I'd had some contact with at NASA's Office of Inspector General, and they said, we're looking for an investigative counsel. And uh, at the time, the thought of working at NASA was just incredibly intriguing to me. You wanted to, uh, I you know, know you wanted to go into space on the, on the latest space shuttle, but... What would... <laughs> I, I, I definitely did, but I can tell you this. Uh, among the fun, the fun things I got to do when I was there, um, I came within uh, a handshake distance of Buzz Aldrin, somebody mm. who had been to the moon, so that was, that was pretty exciting. Uh, I got to interview four different astronauts, uh, including the uh, the one that fixed the Hubble uh, space telescope, uh, you may have seen the. I remember. The, uh, the, yeah, there's a film of he's a former firefighter who became a NASA astronaut. He had to basically yank one of the bolts uh, right off the thing to fix it. I got to interview him, and uh, it was a just a tremendous experience. Uh, but among the things that we investigated at the NASA OIG were things like um, there were a couple of rockets that exploded because they had improper parts on them. Like basically somebody said, hey, the steel is this amount of tension. And uh, guess what? They flubbed the test. Um, and, uh, and then, the, of course, um, uh, there were a lot of problems with conflicts of interest, as you can imagine. Uh, scientists you know, tend to revolve in and out of NASA, and there's a, a great temptation uh, to you know, provide uh, uh, contracts to companies and then go work for the company and that sort of thing. So that was a tremendous experience. Well, that takes care of that. That tells me you're looking at in, investigations. You're, you're rooting it out. You're looking for it. Uh, what happens after that? Let's say you found a problem. Let's you know talk about those bolts that you just uh, had bolt that you talked about. And I'm not asking that about that specific case, but uh, does your division? Uh, whether it's in NASA or the Department of Justice, actually do prosecutions? No. So what happens is we will do the investigations, and then we'll go to a U.S. attorney's office or, in some cases, a uh, one of the litigating components of Maine Justice, like the uh, Public Integrity Section or the Civil Rights Division, um, and we'll present our findings to that office. And then if that office thinks that we have uh, presented the facts for a viable case, then they'll initiate uh, they'll open up a, a file, and um, if they're convinced the evidence is strong enough, they'll they'll indict the person, um, and in some cases they'll bring a, a civil lawsuit, uh, depending on what the case involves. Mm -hmm. Well, now I'm going to jump back to where you came from because uh, you and I have known each other for many years, um, going back to when I was U.S. attorney and you were a reporter for the Detroit News, and um, we can talk about that case that we've. Uh, both uh, were pursuing uh, many, many, many years ago before most of my audience was born. But <laughs> it did result in you and your uh, associate, your partner in this investigation, that investigation, uh, to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize for investigative journalism, as I recall, correct? Yes, yes, back in 1994. So let's, let's briefly talk about, uh, about you. 
you're okay. you, you did uh, investigations for the the uh, Detroit uh, News, and we're going to talk about some other things that you worked on. But where'd you come from originally? So I um, I grew up in Oakland County, um, a little little village, Beverly Hills, between Birmingham and Southfield. I remember um, having I, I remember having breakfast with. Uh, a, an opinion writer for the Detroit News in a in a breakfast nook in Beverly Hills. There you ah, go. You, yeah, not Beverly Hills, California, but no, uh, Beverly Hills, uh, Michigan. And this is Oakland <laughs> County, Michigan. But just to tie it together. Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, my father was uh, an auto engineer for General Motors, and uh, my mom was a homemaker. Although she eventually uh, was elected to. The, the uh, village council in Beverly Hills. Um, and uh, so I, I grew up uh, there. And then I, uh, uh, as a kid, I, I was, became interested in sports announcing, sports journalism. And um, that's kind of what I was leaning towards, although I, I was definitely influenced by the movie All the President's Men when it came out in 1976. About what? And, uh, about the uh, about Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post uncovering the Watergate scandal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that remains one of my my favorite movie of all time. Um, and so then I went to Michigan State uh, to get a degree in journalism. And uh, uh, my dad had played football for Michigan State, and so I really I was brought up to you know uh, dislike Michigan and and love Michigan State. <laughs> <laughs> You bleed green and white, right? I do, I do, which is, uh, I ended up going to Michigan, but we can talk about that later. But uh, uh, in, in any regard, I went to Michigan State, and uh, I originally did sports reporting, but I, I kind of drew, grew tired of, of the game stories. You know, there's only so many ways you can sort of describe a win or a loss. And the, the interviews with the coaches and the players uh, are so filled with cliché that it just it just got kind of it wasn't captivating enough and so I, I tried my hand at straight news and really fell in love with it and I uh, ended up becoming the editor of the, the college newspaper um, which is where I went, met my wife but uh, so that's kind of how I got my start in journalism where'd you go from there you you graduated with a journalism degree where'd you go yeah so it I'll tell you it, it uh, it took me quite a while to get to the Detroit news and I applied multiple times, but, uh, so I had to kind of, you know, uh, uh, make my way, uh, through the profession. I started out at the Oakland press, um, and that's in, uh, in Pontiac. It was, a uh, at the time it had a daily circulation of about 70,000. Um, I always chuckled because they had billboards that said, uh, delivered to a doorstep near you. And I always thought like you probably should deliver it to the person's doorstep not the neighbor <laughs> because I, I think your readers would be happier with yeah. that. But anyway, uh, I did that for a year and then I, I was able to uh, move up to the Flint journal uh, that paid better and a larger newspaper. So I did that for a year. Uh, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, and uh, around that time, my wife had gotten a job uh, with uh, the governor of Michigan, Jim Blanchard uh, in his press office. She was originally an assistant press secretary. And so we moved to Lansing and I was commuting to Flint and that got old. So I, I took a pay cut to, uh, to 
take a six month stint at the at the Lansing office of the United Press International. Um, I did that for six months and I got really lucky because somebody at the Associated Press uh, was leaving. Uh, their office was literally next door, uh, about four feet away. And uh, so then I was able to get a permanent job with AP. And I did that for two years covering primarily the Michigan House of Representatives. And uh, that really was kind of the thing that gave me my big break because I was regularly scooping uh, the Detroit News and Free Press that, you know, they would take the AP wire service. So I, I'd do a story and they'd have to run my story. Their own reporters didn't have it. And uh, they got kind of tired of that. And so then I applied to the Detroit News and and lo and behold, I got I got hired at the Detroit News. So that was uh, it took me five years to get to uh, the Detroit News. But, um, you know, it, it, I learned a ton along the way. What what intrigued you? You you said that you got tired of the cliches with sports players and, hey, um, I'm just here to work for my team. Anything that helps my team, I'm only I'm a team guy. I really don't care about personal honors or the fact that I just scored my uh, 71st point uh, in 35 seconds and sets the all-time national record. I don't care about that. I just want to help my team. <laughs> yeah, or it's a it's a four quarter game. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise! You know, <laughs> I thought it was. I thought they quit at the half. Uh, so, so at any rate, what intrigued you about investigation, investigative reporting? Yeah, I think several things. Um, I, I think um, you know, I, I love the idea that um, you know, as a journalist, you were there covering whatever you were covering on behalf of you know. In my case, when I got the Detroit News in 1988, you know, 680,000 readers. So, uh, you know, you felt a certain responsibility. If you're covering a hearing, um, you know, how do I make this uh, important and interesting to the people who are going to read the paper? Um, more importantly, uh, what really, you know, kind of inspired me was to try to try to dig up things uh, that, that were below the surface, uh, the things that maybe public officials were hiding uh, and that sort of thing. And, uh, um, you know, it, the, the th interesting thing is that the, the, like an example with a Capitol press corps there, one of the problems that, and I think this happens everywhere, uh, where there's multiple reporters for different outlets, but you, there develops kind of at times a cozy relationship between the people they're covering, uh, in this case, the legislators and the legislative leaders and the press. And, you know, you, you you're discouraged in many ways from doing tough stories and that sort of thing. So uh, I know early on uh, when I was doing some hard hitting stories, um, you know, for example, there was a time when the uh, the speaker of the House didn't like a story I wrote. And and he he basically told all the members of the Capitol press corps he was never going to talk to me again. Um and, uh, you know, the other, I think, members of the press corps were kind of, see, that's what you get when you write those tough stories. And at the time, I really wasn't that concerned because <laughs> the one thing I learned over time was uh, if, if the, the same person who made a threat like that wanted a hard-hitting story, they weren't going to the other reporters. 
they were contacting me. Mm. Uh, and and just to follow up on that, uh, you know, the, the person who, who supposedly had instituted a lifetime ban of me, like about four days later, called me with a story idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, so that it, it was, but it was surprising how how sort of how many reporters, you know, sort of didn't capture that. I think, and uh, I'll give you one vignette. Uh, that that I think sort of says a lot. Um, I was in the in the restroom just off the lobby of the the house chamber, and um, I had been working on uh, a story idea with a colleague of mine, uh, Charlie Kane, who uh, uh, read. You know, he's passed away. He was a great reporter for the Detroit News. But in any case, he and I were working on this story about you know attendance, uh, how many votes that lawmakers missed, and that sort of thing. So I'm in the in the restroom, and two lawmakers come in. They don't they don't know I'm in there, and they start talking about, um, you know, they're going to miss some upcoming votes, and it doesn't matter. Uh, the voters won't know. They, you know, it's it's no big deal. And one of them's going on a fishing trip, and and that sort of thing. So this this big investigative piece about lawmakers not being present. Um, you know, I included that vignette, uh, and <laughs> I, I did it because I thought, you know, I am here on behalf of 600,000 Detroit news readers. And if they were here, you know, they would want to know that this is how these guys are talking about their duty as lawmakers and where it fits into their, you know, their life, their life, um, their priorities for life. Yeah. In yeah. fact, the, the quotes that actually got cut from the story, uh, I, I've never been so upset, that the final paragraph of that little sidebar was, um, you know, you have to get your priorities straight. And that never did run in the paper. Uh, there, is anyway. such, there is such a thing as the, uh, the editorial uh, cutting board. All right, we're going to take a break yes. right now. We're talking to Jim Mitzelfeld. Uh, Senior Counsel for the the Investigations Division of the Office of Inspector General of the Department of Justice uh, and a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist who we're going to be talking uh, with about uh, some of the vignettes that he's had in his life, uh, both as a reporter and as a prosecutor, an investigator. This is John Smetanka Run with respect, and we will be right back. back on with respect with Jim Mitzelfeld, senior counsel to the investigations division of the Office of Inspector General for the Department of Justice in Washington. Uh, this is John Smetanka. So Jim, when we broke, you were telling this, this uh, fascinating story, uh, a little vignette about how you overheard something. Is there nothing sacred about the restroom? I mean, does everything that, uh, is that, is that open season? <laughs> Well, in my view, it was. 
All right. I, I just, you know. Well, he, here's the thing. Yes. All right. So yeah. you, you found something just by a casual conversation that uh, leveraged you, gave you leverage to talk about priorities, even though the quote didn't get in. It was cut for the, your editor. But um, the priorities that government officials have, and how does that, how did that affect you? You, you did a hard-hitting piece. Uh, you eventually got to the Detroit News. What happened um, to get you to do this? I mean, what's the, what's behind this in your in your in your psyche? Yeah, um, you know, um, it's it's an interesting question. Um, I think I think I I was raised uh, in a in, by a father who, you know, was very concerned about right and wrong, and um, when he when he was working at General Motors. He had climbed the ladder and uh, got to a pretty high position as an engineer. And uh, one of the executives there had told him, um, you know, that they want they, they asked him to investigate whether the rotary engine would be uh, a successful strategy to adopt. And he and some engineers did a lot of work, studied it, and they basically came to the conclusion that the, the rotary engine wasn't going to do what this executive wanted it to do and it would be a real waste of money if general motors pursued it and and he was at a high level meeting where this was discussed and he spoke out and he said it's it's not going to do that you know we, we we shouldn't we shouldn't pursue that path we've run the data it's not doesn't doesn't do what you think it's going to do and uh sure enough his his career at general motors was you know kind of flatlined from then on um, and the, the company went ahead and spent, I don't know, $11 million or whatever it was. And it turned out my father was right, but no one at General Motors ever said, Hey, you know, we should have listened to you. Um, and so that, that's the kind of, um, uh, you know, the kind of person that, uh, that was that, you know, I, I grew up with that sort of mentality that you should, that you should speak out and, um, uh, you know, even if there is a cost. Uh, and, and I used to love the, the mantra uh, that some journalists, you know, follow that uh, the job of a journalist is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, some of it is the is the, the fun of investigating things. Um, and and some of it is just trying to right wrongs. Uh, but but as a journalist, you have a, a great deal of power to make things right um, and to expose the underbelly, uh, particularly of government. And so it was, it was an incredibly rewarding experience, but, um, but it also uh, took its toll. <laughs> In what ways? Well, the hours were terrible <laughs> mm -hmm. and the pay wasn't very good. And the stress was uh, enormous. Um, when I ended up switching and going to law school, uh, I had nightmares for about 18 months, um, and I still have them now on occasion that I'm back at the newsroom <laughs> and they want to know where that story is. Um, so, you know, it's uh, w when I was thinking about how long do I want to do this, I wanted to have a, have kids, and a lot of my editors at the paper were on their third families, mm -hmm. and, you know, I just thought I can either be a really good reporter and a bad father 
or a really good father and do something different. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's kind of one of the things that and, and uh, the influence of people like you uh, that uh, led me to uh, pursue something different. Well, let's talk about uh, not so much about me, although I'd love to hear about me, but seriously, um, <laughs> we came, we got to know each other in an investigation of the House Fiscal Agency scandal uh, in the state of Michigan uh, many, many years ago. Um, how did you get into that? And I'll tell you, and I will then fill in the, uh, the blanks uh, as to what we were doing at the same time in the federal government. Sure, sure. Well, um, it, it was fascinating how this all began because um, in the 1992 legislative uh, election, uh, November 92, the citizens of Michigan elected 55 Republicans and 55 Democrats to the state house. And that hadn't happened in at least 40 years. And so it presented the, the uh, some, some of your listeners may not know, but the, um, you know, whichever party has the majority, uh, you can have the majority by one vote, and then you basically rule everything. Um, <laughs> so even though it's a democracy, it doesn't act, the, the chamber doesn't act very democratically once the once the leadership uh, decisions are made. But in and any it, case, and this goes both ways, both uh, uh, Democrats or Republicans. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this this was unusual because 55 55, <clears throat> the the two parties had to decide how are we going to run the, the chamber? Um, who's going to be the speaker? Who's going to be the chairperson of the various committees? And they worked out a, a power sharing agreement that was actually quite impressive. Um, and but the, but the Democrats had had control of the Michigan House for a long time, uh, which is uh, sort of an important part of this story. And the other thing that happened is not long after this power sharing arrangement was was devised, um, the governor at the time, John Engler, uh, made the decision to freeze the check writing authority of the legislature. And at the time, I thought, boy, that's that's kind of weird. Why why is he doing that? And I knew it wasn't going to be much of a story. Uh, you know, uh, it might be on B three in the metro section, but but I just thought, you know, I need to I need to pursue this. So while I was making calls and asking people about this, I was talking to one of my sources, and um, you know, they were trying to explain um, why this was happening, and it. The, the answers they were providing just didn't seem very fulfilling. And I kept, I kept pursuing and asking more and more questions. And finally, the, uh, the source got kind of tired of my questions and said, listen, uh, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this is because of the rumors out there. And I said, what rumors? And they said, well, um, th- there's rumors that checks are being made out to cash. And I immediately kind of, I think my heart probably skipped because I thought, wow, um, if there are checks made out to cash, uh, that's a recipe for theft because if the, if the, the payee doesn't say who the check is going to, then anybody can just cash it and the, the money, the trail for the money will be lost. So uh, I also thought the beauty of this is, unlike so many tips you get as a reporter, this is something that, that I can I can nail down. Like if I just have to get the canceled checks and see if there's any that are written as cash. So anyway, so I started pursuing this 
and I there were five parts of the legislature that could write checks, and I asked each of them for their canceled checks for the previous year, and fairly quickly, four of the five responded. So the House uh, itself, the Senate, the Senate Fiscal Agency, the Legislative Services Bureau all provided me with checks, and they weren't that interesting, but uh, you know, I learned a few things going through them all. But one of the agencies refused, and that was the House Fiscal Agency, uh, which, of course, as a reporter, was an immediate red flag that something something was amiss. So, uh, you know, I started trying to pressure the director of the House Fiscal Agency, John Morberg. Uh, I said, you know, listen, I need to see these checks. You're, you're the only one that's not providing them. Uh, ultimately, I'm going to have to do a story that you're hiding these these checks and uh, and he should have taken that offer, uh, but uh, but mm-hmm. he didn't. And so uh, ultimately, uh, we set up a meeting, and I went into the meeting, and I was meeting with John Morberg and his bookkeeper Kate Beckholtz, and uh, they they handed me a check register when I walked in, and I didn't want to see a check register. I wanted to see the <laughs> but. Uh, but it was fascinating because the check register was was perfect. It was it was it was in uh, you know handwritten in pen, and there were no mistakes. There was you know it was it it, it would look like no check register I'd ever seen in my life. Um, and a lot of your listeners, particularly the young ones, I know because I've told this story to younger audiences, they don't even know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. when I say a check register. But you know it's a, a written record of of the checks that you've written, you write down the, the number, the payee, the amount, uh, so you can keep track of, so you don't overdraft your checking account before we all had immediate access to our account balances. Um, and so what they did know is that prior to the meeting, I had gone to the treasury department and gotten a computer printout of all the checks that the house fiscal agency had written. Oops. And it had, yeah, it had three three columns of information. It had the check number, the date that it cleared, and the amount. But what it didn't have was the payee. And so, of course, it didn't help me with my story because I was looking for checks made out to cash. So anyway, I, I pull out this this uh, computer printout, the ones that, you know, the old days when they were all connected to the page. And, uh, and I started going through their check register. And I said, well, where's this check? Where's that check? And they realized that, you know, I'd kind of caught them a little bit in their, their game. And so, and this is my favorite moment of the whole thing. Um, Morberg uh, looks at Kate Beckholtz and says, Kate, get him the checks. Oh, stop right and, there. I'm yeah, going to take a Kate, break. I'm going to take and, a break. Okay, right. And you're going to come back and that story. give finish. the rest okay. of that story. Because it's right. a key to this, uh, this discussion. This is John Smetanka run with respect, and we're talking to Jim Mitzelfeld, currently senior counsel for the Investigations Division of the Office of Inspector General for the Department of Justice. But now we're talking about his role in bringing to light the scandal called the House Fiscal Agency and, frankly, how we got together to know each other. This is John Smetanka. We'll be right back.
We're now back on With Respect with Jim Mitzelfeld, Senior Counsel to in, for the Investigations Division of the Office of Inspector General in D.C. When we broke, uh, we were talking about, you got you halfway through a conversation, you've got, the, you've got some of the books and records, uh, uh, the checklists, and there's an oops moment in the meeting between you and Moorberg, who's the head of the House Fiscal Agency, and his uh, chief uh, auditor. What happened? Yeah, so, so Morberg says to Beckel, get him the check. And she says, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and so then they, they start getting into a big fight in front of me. And, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm just like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> because there's something in these checks that are, you know, are going to be uh, worth looking at. So ultimately, he prevailed. A uh, big mistake on his part, and uh, he should have listened to the bookkeeper. Uh, so she went and got the canceled checks, and I sat down with them. And over a six-hour period, um, I went through every check um, one by one, and I created my own check register. Uh, I I had created like the a template, if you will. And I went and I, I listed all the checks and, you know, all the information about the checks. And as I was going through, I asked them questions. You know, what what is this check for? What's that one for? And, you know, the entire time, it, it, this, this, the, the scope of this thing became clear as to, you know, oh, my Lord, this is a big story. But the thing that, that's funny is that there were no checks. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, there were no checks made out to cash. Uh, the original tip was wrong, uh, and this was way better because the <laughs> checks weren't made out to cash. They were made out to individuals, and and they were for things that were absolutely ridiculous, unrelated to government work, and the, the checking account was supposed to be a petty cash checking account, and uh, we can talk in a second about the things that they were using this money for, but during the interview, I, I didn't let on that in my mind I was thinking I have just kicked over the biggest trash can, you know, <laughs> in a long time. And I just, you know, I just sort of was a good listener, uh, active listening. Uh, and then at the very end of the interview, I think I surprised Morberg when I asked him questions like, did any of the people that got this money pay taxes on it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, did you get kickbacks from any of these people that got these checks? And I think at that point he realized, you know, that I wasn't like buying all of his bizarre explanations for the legitimacy of all these checks. And, uh, you know, when it, when it ultimately ran the story, the first day's story and the day the story ran, uh, on January 15th, uh, 1993, uh, the, the attorney general's office, uh, quickly moved in and put and put a padlock on the on the door of the House Fiscal Agency. Ten employees were suspended. Uh, Morberg was suspended, and and then of course a little bit later you guys got involved. But uh, w when it was all said and done, we discovered that they, over seven years they had stolen 1.8 million dollars in taxpayer money. And uh, you know if you want we can talk about some of the things they used the money for, but they. Needless to say, they didn't pay taxes on any of this money. Well, and, uh, the, my side of the story on this uh, on this uh, whole scandal 
was that uh, the Bureau came in to see me about, oh, I was U.S. Attorney at the time, and, and I don't remember exactly the date, but they said, uh, you know, the, they've got these two reporters, um, Mitzelfeld and Friedman, and they are investigating something that we've been looking at, but they're way ahead of us. And I said, what do you mean way ahead of us? Well, we like for example, we talked to a guy uh, yesterday, and Mitzelfeld and Friedman were there uh, three weeks ago. And I thought, <laughs> uh-oh. So we this went on, and periodically you would call our office, and we would have the usual, I don't know what you're talking about, no comment, we don't comment in, on federal investigations. And this this kept going on, and so we, you and I became... Um, acquaintances and and later friends but as we went through this uh we knew we're getting closer because i'd get reports okay well we're we're only one week behind them they just uh they got we got to a guy one week later after they interviewed him and then finally okay we're really on this yesterday we we interviewed the same guy that they interviewed and so this was kind of building as we went along and i will tell you that it was fascinating uh, to see what everybody, you and the FBI, developed. And, yes, we did <coughs> prosecute these <coughs> probably these people. Um, and it was with great delight because what you don't know is that uh, there were other people involved in parallel investigations that um, I don't think ever came out but uh, resulted in some fairly substantial prosecutions uh, in other parts of the country. Uh, as a result of your work, uh, it was very, very valuable uh, to the country. Well, believe me, uh, one was a um, about a billion dollar bribe case, and uh, I thought that's substantial amounts. That's a serious amount of money. But at any rate, uh, so you got the Pulitzer Prize for this. Damn nation, we got nothing for it, but you got the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Well, you got some convictions out of it. Yeah, well, we got some convictions out of it. In, in fact, uh, I'll just tell you that, um, you know, I ended up uh, doing a, uh, I went to law school, and we, we could talk about that maybe. But but anyway, I was clerking for David McKeague, the federal district judge in Lansing, who sentenced John Moorberg to six years in prison. Mm. And on the day of his sentencing, I was sitting in the, the audience uh, I, I because, um, you know, I, I was obviously recused from any role in in uh, the sentencing and as i was sitting in the audience this is a few months after the pulitzer was announced and uh Moorberg came in for his sentencing and he sees me and he says congratulations on the pulitzer and <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, what the <laughs> this story couldn't get any weirder <laughs> uh here's the guy that's about to get sentenced to federal prison for a story i wrote and he's congratulating me for the pulitzer so um, very well, strange way. You know, it, it, in a parallel story, uh, completely unrelated to, to you, I was trying a, a, a case, uh, and um, it's about a three-week tax case, and the fellow who was on trial had uh, mis, uh, had not reported about $3 million or so in income. And, and um, so all the way during the trial, he kept coming over to me at the break, and he'd say, hey, John, let me tell you another story. And he, w- he was very funny, and he kept telling these jokes. And his attorney kept uh, sh- kind of, no, no, stop this. No, you know, g- get back over here. 
So about the in the middle of the third week of the trial, he came over at one ra- one uh, break and he said, "Hey John, look, I know that you like Notre Dame football. I got a couple of tickets for this ca- Saturday's game. Would you like them?" <laughs> and I said, "I looked at this guy. Have you got a hole in your head?" And his attorney <laughs> grabbed him and yanked him back. <laughs> well, the final part of the story is I got Christmas cards from him after he went to prison. The first year he was in prison, the first one, literally, oh, this is completely true. Um, the first Christmas card said, having a great time, wish you were here. And, <laughs> and then the second year he sent me a card which said, you know, you're going to be a great person someday because, but I want you to remember, I gave you your start. <laughs> so, at, at any rate, there is certain amount of humor here. You know, it's just it's a it's a strange world, but eventually, um, everybody gets an experience that they can tell at cocktail parties, and this one used to happen to be true. So, exactly. all right, you got the Pulitzer. You went on to law school. Why did you go to law school? Well, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of folks. Uh, you know, when they found out that that uh, that I got the Pulitzer, you know, why would you leave journalism? Well, the the problem is that's not the order that things went down. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, a- after I I broke this story and and uh, um, and after I was had done it a, a couple of weeks, Eric ended up joining the story. We worked on it together, and uh, about five months after that, uh, for some of the reasons that that I mentioned earlier about you know the the difficulty, the stress of doing the job and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I went to my bosses and I said, look, that's, that's the, you know, that's about as big a story as I'm going to ever break. Um, I'd like a significant pay raise. And at the time, because, um, well, it's still a uh, union newspaper as is the free press, but we were able to see everyone's salaries. So ironically, even though we were in a union, the union provided a base level but then you could make more than the base level depending on your success, but you could, everyone knew everyone's salary. So I had the list with me and I said, listen, you know, I think I deserve, you know, maybe a $200 a week pay raise or whatever, because uh, you know, look what I've been able to do. And my editor looked at me and he said, Jim, if you, if you wanted to make money, you shouldn't have gone into journalism. And Mm. this was, this was a guy who was already making like three times as much money as I was <laughs> as, as an editor. <laughs> and, uh, and so at the time I just, I was like, okay, that's the final straw. And, uh, so, um, uh, I ended up going to law school and, uh, and th- there's an interesting story about how I ended up getting in. Uh, yeah. I'm happy to tell, but, sure. but, um, okay. So, uh, a, a few months before this, um, uh, I had applied to the, the, my wife had a good job. She was at this point, she was the deputy press secretary to the governor of Michigan. And, you know, we kind of agreed that uh, we could live off of her salary if I went to law school. So I had the luxury of not having to work and do law school at the same time. So, but I had to apply to a, a law school that was within, you know, driving distance of where she would be working. And uh, so I applied to all the different law schools and, uh, the one I really wanted to get into was Michigan because, of course, it was the one of the best reputations. So I got a form rejection letter uh, from Michigan, and I was very sad and upset. And uh, my mother-in-law um, said, uh, why don't you appeal it? And, and I thought to myself, 
you know, I didn't say this, but I thought to myself, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Uh, and she said, no, no, no. She said, I, I know somebody else that, that, you know, they, they, they didn't get in and they, they kept pestering them and, and, and it succeeded. So I thought, well, there's no downside to this. Um, and so I called the University of Michigan admissions office and I said, uh, you know, uh, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I think you guys made a mistake. <laughs> and, and I thought she would just start laughing and hang up on me. <laughs> and uh, instead, she was incredibly polite. And she said, well, she said, sometimes we do. She said, um, uh, why don't you uh, write us a letter and tell us why you think we made a mistake? And so I was really intrigued that she was inviting me to, you know, to send her a letter. Um, but I was also kind of irritated because I thought, you know, I put everything I had into my essay. And uh, what am I going to say in this letter that I didn't already say, you know, in the essay that didn't persuade you guys in the first place. But I got very lucky on the timing because I, I wrote this letter right uh, maybe a couple of weeks after I started breaking these stories for the Detroit News on the House Fiscal Agency. Mm. So I was able to include these stories and talk about the impact they were having. And um, so I kind of started a letter writing campaign. And about six weeks later, I got another letter from the University of Michigan Law School. And I thought, oh, great. Uh, you know, I've been rejected twice. <laughs> and uh, I opened it up and it said, uh, we've decided to put you on the wait list. And I was probably the happiest person in the world <laughs> to ever find out that they were on a wait list. <sighs> because, you know, before I wasn't even, you know, I had been rejected. So then I really picked up the letter writing campaign. And uh, and ultimately, uh, I said, you know, I would like to get, if possible, um, 10 minutes with the admissions director. And <laughs> and, and the, the woman was like, uh, sir, we don't do that. Like, you don't you can't ask for. And I said, well, how about if I come to his, his waiting room and sit there? And if he if he has a break, how about if, you know. You just let see if you can fit me in. And she said, well, I can't stop you from doing that, but I, I you know, it's not going to work. And, you know, so it, in the, in the meantime, I had found out that, um, that the, the stories were going to be nominated for a Pulitzer prize. And so I wrote sort of one last letter where I said, you know, I said, you know, these stories have been nominated for a Pulitzer prize and wouldn't it be great if I was sitting in your classroom next spring when, uh, you know, when it was announced <laughs> that I won the Pulitzer Prize. And at, the, at the time I wrote that, I thought to myself, uh, what a load of BS. You know, I, I like I almost couldn't. I read that line to my wife and I said, should I say this? And we had a big laugh about it. We all kind of agreed. Well, what the heck? There's no downside. In the meantime, I, I, I went to the law school, sat in the office, waited three or four hours or something. And ultimately the guy must have, uh, uh, he had pity on me. Uh, and, and he, he, he let me in. And at the beginning of our 10 minute conversation, he said, Jim, he said, he said, the numbers don't look good. You know, he said, uh, uh, I don't think we're going to have room for you, but you know, and so we talked for 10 minutes. I knew like, this is the most important 10 minute, you know, elevator pitch I'm ever going to have. Uh. And end of the conversation he said jim he said let me see what i can do I, i'm gonna i'm gonna look back at everything and and uh, i'll get in touch and sure enough uh about five days later he called me personally 
and said, I found a spot for you. Um, you know, you know, you can be a student at the University of Michigan Law School. So I, I was able to sort of, in essence, talk my way in. And uh, and then sure enough, um, I was uh, in the classroom when the, you know, uh, I, I took the day off to go down to the newsroom when they when they were announcing the awards and I got the award. And the next day, the law school erupted uh, with the news. So uh, he ended up attending my graduation ceremony and we've stayed in touch. And uh, so it's it's uh, it was kind of a Cinderella experience. <clears throat> that is great. We're going, to, we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Jim Mitzelfeld, uh, Senior Counsel to the Investigations Division of the uh, Office of Inspector General of the Department of Justice and an a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. And we're going to be talking more about his uh, career in um, accountability, providing some accountability for where it never occurred before uh, in many, many different areas of life and government. Uh, this is John Smetankin, and we'll be right back. Now on With Respect with Jim Mitzelfeld, Senior Counsel to the Investigations Division of the Office of Inspector General in uh, Washington, the Department of Justice. This is John Smetanka. So, Jim, we, we uh, finished that segment, and you were talking about uh, the joy that you got out of persistence. And I t- I've been around a uh, one of my law partners uh, uh, had a great experience, uh, unpleasant, but, uh, uh, but quite uh, revealing, where some uh, governmental official, a prosecutor, assistant prosecutor, uh, said to me, that woman is so persistent. It was not considered a compliment by that person. But she was, in fact, uh, a great lawyer, and is a great lawyer, and, uh, uh, and persistent. So that's what you were as well. Well, Jim, I want to I come on to something else, which is, you got to the Department of Justice, and you've made a career in and out of the federal government, and I want you to walk us through, and, and there's so much to talk from here on. I think we're going to have to bring you back for another show, but let's talk right now about how you got into the prosecution side of the Department of Justice. Well, I, and I, this is where I'm going to give you a shout-out, whether you like it or not, because... <laughs> Uh, you know, when I was a report, we, we talked a little bit about how I got into law school, but, but we didn't, I didn't really focus on why did I want to go as much? Why did I want to be a lawyer? And one of the things that I found as a, as a reporter that I really enjoyed, uh, watching trials, um, being in the courtroom when, uh, there was, uh, interesting arguments. And, and there were times when I thought, you know, I can, I can sit here on the sidelines and watch, uh, you know, other people do this interesting work and write about it, or I can, 
uh, as Teddy Roosevelt said, you know, get in the arena myself and, uh, and give it a shot. And I, I was very intrigued by uh, the work of prosecutors and, and in talking to you uh, and, and like you said, striking up our, our friendship uh, as the House Fiscal Agency story uh, kind of came to fruition. And then after I went to law school and, uh, you know, you were a great help in, in kind of, first of all, you were a great role model on, on the, the, you know, what it's like to be a U.S. attorney and, and work for the Justice Department. And it, and it looked like such a fascinating job. And you gave me a lot of great advice while I was in law school about what different uh, summer positions I should pursue. And um, I just, I really was drawn to the idea of, you know, being able to sort of continue to investigate things. Uh, but as I like to joke, um, you know, the idea of being a, a reporter with subpoena power uh, <laughs> seems, seems a little, uh, just a little too juicy to, uh, to not pursue. And so, um, it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned persistence and I, I've tried to tell young people how important it is to not give up if you have a dream. And of course, the, the, you know, you're not always going to get what you want, but, but it's what you find along the way sometimes. I mean, the, the Department of Justice had a summer intern program for law students. And so I applied after my first year of law school, my second year of law school, my third year of law school before I became a the law clerk to Judge McKeague, and each time I got rejected. And then they also had an honors program for for uh, law law graduates. And you know, at the time I thought about applying to that, I thought, you know, my God, I've already been rejected by these folks three different times. What's the point? But I also thought, you know, especially after the law school experience, there's no downside. And sure enough, even though I was unable to get an interview for a law student intern position, uh, despite my success in journalism, I was able to get an interview for um, the honors program. And it was quite funny because the guy who interviewed me, Doug Letter, who's been in the news a lot in the last year or two because he's the general counsel for the House of Representatives now, but he had actually argued the Supreme Court case involving the joint operating agreement between the Detroit News and the Free Press. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I like to joke with him that he kind of uh, his his arguments kind of helped lead to the demise of the Detroit News uh, because the joint <laughs> agreement was so, uh, so hard on so many in so many different ways. But anyway, uh, he was the one that interviewed me and, and I ended up getting a, a job in the honors program with the Department of Justice in Washington. Well. I can tell you that uh, having on the other side of the of the telephone when we talked, uh, I was happy to help you out because there was there's so many uh, positions which I thought you could be helpful, uh, not only to yourself and your career, but rather to also uh, the public. Um, and I I think that's been proven, uh, as we'll in our in our next show we'll talk about the various things that you've done in government, uh, but. Let me end up this segment by talking about how would you tell a young person who asks you, "Hey, Jim, Mr. Mitzelfeld, uh, you've got a, this. You've got this great background. Um, I'm I'm really interested in in doing something for the for the, w- the good of the public and the world. Uh, and I just I just what would you what what do you suggest I do? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the, the one thing I would suggest is uh, there's several things I would suggest. So one is to read, read a lot, um, <clears throat> read books about uh, the people that you think have had uh, lives and careers and done things that you find interesting, um, both, you know, the memoirs, the autobiographies, but also the biographies. So you can get a so you can get some knowledge about whatever it is that uh, the area that you're interested in. So that's that's always a great idea because that'll generate a lot of ideas. But then then what you want to do is to try to, if you can, figure out who are some of the people that are in the in the business or the profession or the art, whatever you're into, that are that are people that you look up to and try to make a connection with them. Um you know, see if you can figure out a way to meet them, or if they're if it's an artist, they're maybe they're doing a, a show or a author has a book signing. You know, try to get to know some of these people. Um, see if there are avenues to volunteer. Um, you know, for these people. Uh, so, for example, my wife, um, she volunteered for Governor Blanchard, and got to know the people in the press office, and they really liked her. And, it, you know, so she worked for free for I don't know how many months. But then when they had an opening, she got a job. So um, that's obviously not something that's possible for people, lots of people who don't, you know, that need a paycheck to, to pay for their rent. Um, but 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 finding people who can be your your North Star and, and help you and answer your questions. And in other words, finding mentors, that's, I think, critical. Um, and so, you know gaining knowledge both from books and from people and then pursuing it and don't give up. Um, you're going to, you're going to face setbacks. Um, you know, you're going to fail, but, um, it's the people that just keep getting back up and, and, um, fighting on that. I think, uh, you know, the ones that end up having success uh, and they find other things along the way. It's that it's pursuit of one thing. Oftentimes you don't get there, but you find something better along the way. There is uh, truer words are never spoken. Um, on this show, we have uh, had probably six, seven hundred guests, and over the years, I think there's seven people uh, who, when they were six years old, wanted to be something, and went on a straight line, never failed, went straight line to their to whatever it was, piano um, uh, soloist, uh, um, author, whatever it happened to be. Most every one of us goes on what I call the zigzag route. They go this way, and then they, oops, can't I get stopped there, or I fail there. Got to take a, a zig, and I go someplace else, and I go zag. and then. But everybody sits back at some point in their life and says, gee, if only I had gone on a straight line, I would be a much more interesting person, and I much would have done much better. And the truth of it is, in my view, of all the really prominent and uh, successful people we have talked to over the years, they are made better, they are more interesting, and they are more successful because of the zigs and zags in their life and in their family life and their careers and whatnot. It's just a fact of life. And we, we always talk about the famous example of the greatest the failure uh, in American public life, probably uh, was a guy who was defeated over and over and over again for years, 
for positions that he sought. One, he won one, and then again more losses. So followed by the name of Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> who simply saved the country. Now, Jim, we're going to ask you to come back. I, I want to talk some more about some very interesting things that you've been involved in. That I think that uh, the public would like to hear uh, because it involves uh, cases that have already taken place and there's no you know, we're not disclosing any private things that are going on now. But uh, thanks very much for joining us today, and we'll be talking to you again. This is John Smetanka, and we're on With Respect, and we're on every Sunday and Thursday. And remember, our motto, until next week, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you. <laughs>